Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. No Facebook for Donald Trump. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. On this day, a 20-member Facebook oversight board decided to keep a ban on Donald Trump using Facebook, a ban that was imposed on him first after the January 6th Capitol insurrection. This decision has major implications in terms of how we police political figures and social media. Joining us to talk about this is Angelo Carosone. He is the CEO, president of Media Matters. Uh, they essentially uh, watch a lot of right wing media so the rest of us don't have to. Uh, Angelo is also an expert on uh, right wing, um, uh, not only uh, extremism, but also how they use media. Angelo, first of all, thanks for being with us. What's your reaction to the Facebook decision? I mean, it's sort of, I mean, this was a <laughs> sort of blew up in Facebook's face a little bit because this whole oversight board was designed as an organ for them to sort of shirk responsibility and not have to make these decisions. Uh, and so they kind of gave it to the oversight board to deal with and they punted it right back to Facebook. So my immediate reaction was uh, this was a PR issue run amok. And my second is that it, you know, unless they ban him immediately, we're basically going to be in the exact same place six months from now. And the Facebook oversight board said that they were a little bit concerned about a sort of an indefinite suspension that they said was vague and uncertain because of the rules of Facebook. So they've given Facebook six months to try to come up with some protocols and to figure out exactly how Trump's punishment fits into their their, their protocols. So what what do you see Facebook doing over the next six months? I think it really depends on what we do, what all of us do, because I think ultimately what they're trying, what they would like to do is run out the clock and let Trump back on. And the reason being is that he does have a huge social media presence, right? And his ability to drive engagement that gets them increased you know, traction and attention spent there. But worse, you know, if he's back on Facebook and he's not anywhere else, it gives them a bit of a competitive advantage because that'll roll us right into the midterms. And then everyone will have to cover Trump's latest Facebook statements and especially as he weighs into primary fights. So I think they would like him to come back. Um, what I, but I, you know, it's an open question. I think there's a lot of grounds for them to, uh, you know, make the ban immediate. Um, I mean, we tracked several hundred individual posts from Trump from just 2020 alone that explicitly break Facebook's terms of service uh, as they relate to election misinformation and public health misinformation. So it's not like they don't have plenty of cause to do it. Um, and they are, there is a precedent. They basically, they would have to follow the Alex Jones model for uh, for a permanent ban. Um, so it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for them. The same thing took place with Alex Jones. And there have been other social media platforms, Twitter, for example, who have also said, look, Donald Trump violated our terms of service and we're just banning him. That's not even a question for us. Is the yep. issue you think driven by money in this case because of the hundreds of millions of dollars that Donald Trump essentially spent on Facebook ads and of course the amount of uh, traction he's able to generate? Yeah, I think I'm glad you said it in the context of ads because that's the one thing that when people talk about the fact that Trump was somehow giving them money, the reality is last quarter their profits were up. So his presence alone isn't, you know, they found a way to monetize hate without Donald Trump. You know, I mean, so that's been the case, but he was one of their biggest ad spenders in 2020. I mean, just a ton of money. And Part of his ability to stay politically relevant would rely on that constant churn, spending more money on Facebook so that you can get a couple cents back on the dollar. 
Uh, and it's basically an ever, it's a massive grift. So that's a piece of it. I think the other part is that their audience really likes what Trump gives them. I mean, that's reflected in you know every day, the top 10 posts are consistently from far right sources and things that sound uh, an awful lot like Donald Trump. So they don't wanna alienate their audience. And the third is we have to think about this in a global context because they're dealing with this exception around a leader is how they're describing it. And that means whatever they do here would set some sort of a precedent for how they would deal with extremists internationally. And the reality is there's a lot of Trump-like figures using the platform all across the board. But the thing is, no, not a single person on at least public official or major account on Facebook has broken the rules as consistently and as frequently as Donald Trump did in 2020. You mentioned that 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 you monitor, Media Matters monitors of Facebook and a lot of right wing posts. What is it about that organization? And I, I'm sure that we've all seen it sort of evolve over the last couple of years, but what is it that has made them, as opposed to other social media organizations, more friendly or more welcoming to right wing extremists and various groups, whether it's Donald Trump driven or, or driven by other groups? In this case, it's personnel. I mean, I think that's one of the really big factors. And oftentimes people focus on Peter Thiel, who's a board member and sort of served as a mentor to to Mark Zuckerberg and he's kind of like this right wing media figure. But actually the real thing that made them more right leaning is a guy by the name of Joel Kaplan, who sets all of the policy, all the rules for Facebook. And all of the major moments over the past few years that have ultimately tilted in favor of the right um, were policies that he set. And Joel Kaplan was George W. Bush's former deputy chief of staff. Uh, and he was a participant in the Brooks Brothers riots in the year 2000, that thing that shut Republican operation to shut down vote counting during the recount in Florida, his deputy is also a Republican operative that was a participant at the Brooks Brothers riots. And those two people are really the ones sort of setting the terms. There's a lot of other factors, but ultimately they're the ones that are making most of these calls. And over time that has largely helped create the conditions where it's favored the right and disadvantaged basically everybody else. Regarding Donald Trump, and again, you mentioned the number of posts that had misleading posts, outright lies. Just recently, Donald Trump there was putting out a press release, which was again saying that anybody who doesn't talk about the election being stolen is in fact lying. So again, he just continues with this with this nonsense. Does this neuter him though to a certain extent, at least for the next six months, because he doesn't have Facebook, he doesn't have any other social media platform. He still has to rely on press releases to spew out whatever nonsense he wants to spew out. You're exactly right, it does. It does limit his ability to, to get his message out. It means it makes him dependent on others. It makes him dependent on on sort of the the you know the Rush Limbaugh like ditto heads who will amplify what he says. Um, and it makes them him dependent on the rest of the media to pick up those press releases and inject them into social media and in their news coverage. Um, and certainly it means he can't directly influence a lot of primaries by helping with fundraising, at least online. And also by helping drive people to candidates' websites, so it's going to have an effect on minimizing him over the next six months and give other people a chance to sort of fill the you know to fill the space. So there there is that. But um, I think you know if Facebook really didn't want Trump back on, which I think that's why they're trying to let to wait and see. The reality is what they would have turned right around today and said is okay, our ban is immediate, just like Twitter did. You know. Um, but they didn't do that, and and that's that's the suspect action here. Is why wait? There's no need to. 
Media Matters has been around longer than Facebook, longer than Twitter. Back in the day, you would monitor what Fox News and other conservative media organizations were sort of putting out there to try to make sure that they were trying to be honest to the extent that they could. Now, it seems like the number of conservative media outlets has has intensified and has spread. I wonder if you can put in some context the role of a, of a Facebook and how much perhaps that supplants the role that cable news used to carry for conservative media. Yeah, if you wanted to make sure that everybody sort of, if you wanted to saturate the conversation, um, 10 years ago, it would have been talk radio and cable news. Uh, that would have basically get you all the people you needed to reach. Uh, and even if you didn't get them directly, the people that did consume it would spread your message for you through word of mouth. You, you got everybody. Um, that's not the case now. In fact, almost all of the Facebook is the ball game. And the majority of what you're seeing on Facebook is saturating. Well before it hits cable news, um, it's already sort of far, far outlasted anything else. I'll give one example to point that out. Steve Bannon had a show, a radio show in the fall, uh, a sort of a podcast program type thing. And he, he had 3 million listeners entirely through Facebook and YouTube live streams. Never once touched a traditional media outlet. Um, when YouTube banned him in January, he lost 70% of his audience. Three million was more than was watching CNN on their best days in October. Um, I mean, and, and that's just one small piece to your point of this larger constellation of right wing outlets. So for people who are not so familiar with social media, maybe of a certain generation or people don't don't like it. I mean, whether we like it or not, I mean, Facebook, Twitter, social media is essentially the, the, the biggest game in town right now. And so these decisions, I guess my point is that these decisions by Facebook, not only do they matter, but they also have far reaching consequences in terms of our society and our politics. They are, and, and you know, one, one, one of the good things about Trump being pushed off aside from him not being able to do it is there was one bright spot that I saw. Is that there's still a bunch of people there, right? And conservatives and right wingers, they even though they don't trust the media, they largely still trust their local news. That hasn't really been hurt very much. When Trump was removed from Facebook, one of the effects that we saw in tracking it is a lot of local news individually started to get more engagement and more reach on Facebook's platform because there's a whole bunch of users there that needed something, and the algorithm started to feed them content from sources that they would engage with and. Um, it's an example of how Facebook could have, you know, can be a determining of fates, not just around individual narratives, but even around what used to be, you know, the pillars of the information landscape, which is local news. Angela, you mentioned it just a minute ago, but again, six months from now, we'll be sort of right back, I suppose, waiting to see what Facebook does for people who want to try to make a difference. What can all of us do in terms of whether it's lobbying or making our voices heard to somehow try to influence this Facebook decision that will come again in six months? I think the simplest thing is to make sure that everybody knows that it's temporary and not let that fall out of the wayside to keep complaining, delete Facebook, participate in some of the blackouts. And we made it pretty easy. We've built a tool, bantrumpnow.com. It's not a subscription thing. You don't have to sign up. It just has all of the posts that break the rules. You go 30 seconds, you report them, let them know that they don't have to wait anymore. Just get it over with. Everybody's making the calls, do it, do it fast. Angelo Carasone, he's the president and CEO of Media Matters. Traditionally, they've been the group that watches a right wing media, so the rest of us don't have to. But now they're watching not only cable news, they're also watching social media, Twitter, Facebook. Angelo, thanks so much for coming on. I suppose we'll be talking with you again in another six months when this comes up again, but we do appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Got it.
Welcome back to the conversation. The Biden administration is promoting a $2 trillion infrastructure package, and they're asking that it be paid for largely through a change in the corporate tax rates through higher taxes on the wealthy. That has prompted a pretty fierce debate on Capitol Hill. Joining us to talk about all of this is Dana Bai. She is the campaign director for Tax March, which is an accountability and fairness, not only for a group, not only for the tax code, but also for the economy in general. Dana, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, David. First of all, what do you make of the Biden administration to essentially raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28% to make people who are making more than $500,000 pay more as a way of trying to pay for this infrastructure package? I think it's a great policy. And I was incredibly impressed last week when President Biden used his address to Congress to really double down on the reason for corporations and the very rich to start paying their fair share in this economy. His line about trickle down economics not working has never worked. It's totally spot on for this moment. And it's time for us to use this you know, Democrat trifecta to make sure that we are having corporations and the super rich who have gained so much over the last 40 years really start paying their fair share. And your organization is using this moment essentially with a campaign, a series of ads targeting certain companies, Nike and Federal Express, who currently essentially pay nothing. I wanna run the ad and then get your reaction and talk about it on the other side. Here's the, uh, the tax march ad related to Federal Express, watch. During the pandemic, FedEx shipped more packages than ever before, raking in $1.2 billion in profits. So how much did FedEx pay in federal taxes? Nothing? Nothing. Just like all these other massive corporations, they paid nothing in federal taxes this year. And they're doing everything possible to keep it that way. That's why tax avoiding corporations like FedEx are lobbying against President Biden's plan to rebuild America. President Biden's plan will make corporations pay their fair share so we can invest in roads, bridges, schools, high-speed internet, creating millions of good jobs. But for FedEx, paying nothing in federal taxes matters more than investing in us. Tell Congress, it's time to put the people first and make corporations like FedEx pay their fair share. Dana, that's an effective ad. Tell me about who the audience is. Is it not only people out there, but the sort of normal citizens, but is it also members of Congress in this case? Absolutely. We want to make sure that the public understands that while they are likely paying their fair share, companies like FedEx, which is a household name and clearly has made a lot of money during the pandemic, just isn't. And so we have targeted folks, um, uh, viewers in Memphis, where FedEx is headquartered uh, to, to see this ad, but then also around Capitol Hill to remind lawmakers that they shouldn't let corporate tax dodging corporations like FedEx really drive the debate around tax fairness and making investments in our economy. I think I read that something like 25 out of the 50 largest corporations in the United States paid no taxes, no income taxes last year or the year before. Why target specifically Federal Express and Nike? So I think with both Federal Express and Nike, they're household names. and. Um, I think it's actually 55 uh, of the biggest corporations paid zero in federal income taxes last year. And so when you look at a corporation like like FedEx, they raked in the most profits than any year prior and still paid nothing. And actually, if you look back to um, where their advocacy efforts were going back in 2017, when Congress was debating Trump's tax plan, the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they lobbied incredibly hard to get that corporate tax rate down. And when they did, 
they stopped paying federal income taxes, even though they had been before. And so that is just a classic scenario, I think, of corporations leveraging their power and influence to ultimately get out of paying what the rest of us all do, which is taxes. When Barack Obama proposed lowering the corporate tax rate from 35% to to bring it down, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, said he was fine if it was at 28%. Well, fast forward, Trump administration lowers the tax rate to 21. Now Joe Biden's mm-hmm. saying, okay, well, let's bring it back up to 28%. And suddenly Joe Manchin's like, no, nah, that's too high. What do you make of Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, the Democrat from Arizona, and sort of their role in all of this and, and what they've been saying about it? It's a great question. And I think one of the things that the advice that I would give to Senators Manchin and Cinema and others who, um, others in the Democratic caucus who are maybe a little wary to talk about taxes is to not be scared. One of the things that we have seen year after year, especially in the wake of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, is that taxing the rich in corporations so that they pay their fair share like the rest of us do is incredibly popular, but also unifying across party lines. You know, when I look at that 28% number, Honestly, it is already a compromise from where we were back at 35% prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And so really going any lower um, is just arguing against ourselves. And so um, that 25% is a bit too low. And I really think that uh, Democrats should be united around um, Biden's plan and 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 keep make sure that we're maintaining that, that floor and not just making 28% the ceiling. Is there anything that maybe we're missing in this debate in terms of you know keeping it focused on the corporate tax rate or making wealthy people pay more? I mean, there have been some creative scenarios introduced in Congress whereby you require corporations to spend a certain amount of their revenue on investment, on on employee wages, those sort of things, and give them a threshold as opposed as opposed to taking away and essentially taking away the argument from simply charging them more in taxes. I think there's a lot of things that the government can do to um, make sure that corporate corporations are actually being responsible public actors and not just signing press statements that say that they value democracy and think that um, they and and saying that they believe in uh, economic fairness. You know, it's one thing to, to to sign a statement, but it's another thing to actually put your money and put your voice publicly in uh, uh, towards Congress for those efforts and making sure that the way in which they're viewing their own profits really thinks first about the workers and not just about the corporate CEOs at the top getting richer and richer. Your organization spends a lot of time talking about wealth inequality. What do you see as being the biggest driver right now of wealth inequality and something that perhaps could be changed to try to narrow the gap once more? I mean, one of the biggest drivers is is our tax code to be perfectly frank. We have dropped the corp- we have dropped the corporate tax rate. We have dropped the top marginal tax rate, and their tax rates have just been coming down and down and down over the last four decades. Under this false idea that if you give tax breaks to the rich, somehow that extra money will just flow down to the rest of us, and that hasn't borne out. the The wealth gap between the richest and the poorest is wider today than it hasn't been as wide as it is today since immediately before the Great Depression. And I think what we saw during the pandemic is that while millions of Americans slipped into poverty, we had over 650 billionaires add more than a trillion dollars to their wealth. That is something that is, un, it's unimaginable in a lot of ways to me. And I think those are some numbers that I always come back to when I'm out talking to our organizers and talking to just regular folks about why the tax code and the role that it plays in income inequality 
is something that has to be tackled and it really needs to be tackled now. What's your assessment of the political landscape in Washington now in terms of tackling it? Where are the votes and where are the key battles gonna be? Absolutely, um, as I mentioned, taxing the rich in corporations is an issue that we have seen pull well time and time again. We have been with Tax March, we have been in the field a number of times over the last few years and seen the same results that a majority of Americans want the rich in corporations to pay their fair share. And so I think really what that comes down to is making sure that lawmakers who feel like they're more on the Democratic side, who feel like they're more middle of the road and maybe a little afraid to talk about taxes, they should take some comfort that this is a unifying thing. One of the, the the fact that President Biden used so much of his address to Congress last week to talk about how many federal, how many corporations avoided taxes, how much money billionaires have added to their wealth, should be a clear indication that the narrative around taxes in this country has changed, and Democrats have a moment right now to reach to to build upon that narrative. At what point does an organization like yours, instead of running ads just say against Nike and Federal Express, start to run ads against a Joe Manchin or in West Virginia, encouraging Joe Manchin to do the right thing? In other words, putting some pressure on him, or is that too dangerous politically at this stage? I think there's a lot of conversations that need to be had with folks in, in West Virginia and making sure that there are you know, advocates who I, you know, I suspect that Senator Manchin trusts. Um, who can talk directly with that with with him about why they think the corporate tax rate, the individual tax rate should be shared. I think right now these corporate actors have a lot of lobbying power in Congress through groups like the Business Roundtable and the US Chamber of Congress. And being sure to hold them accountable, especially corporations like Nike that claim to have these progressive credentials um, is gonna be really important to the, the debate right now and as we get into um, further conversations about this rate. I'm just curious, have you heard anything back from uh, from Nike or Federal Express even indirectly in response to your ad campaign? Uh, FedEx had some choice words in their local <laughs> paper about avoiding corporate taxes, uh, not directly about our ad, but there was a, uh, there was a story that talked about how uh, their CEO, who's one of those billionaires who added wealth during the pandemic, um, uh, definitely thinks the corporate tax rate should not go up. And and Nike, Nike has also said some things since the original, uh, uh, ITEP report about those 55 tax avoiding corporations came out saying, "Oh, but we do pay our taxes, but you're not paying your federal income taxes." So I think we're hitting a, a definitely a sensitive spot, and we're gonna we're gonna keep going for it. Well, it's good that uh, it's good that you're being noticed. It's a $500,000 <laughs> ad buy um, coming perhaps to a TV station or perhaps social media near you. Dana Bai, she's a campaign director with Tax March. Dana, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Absolutely, thanks so much. I'm David Schuster on behalf of Asher Cofield and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.